Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Holding Pocket. Welcome to another episode of The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holies. Hello, hello, Kat. How are we all today? Very chipper. And actually, I'm rather grateful because at the weekend, I went with Richard to a wonderful play that his other half was starring in, Richard Kant. And it was absolutely mesmerizingly brilliant. And I just assumed that you would just quietly text through the whole... Because you don't do theatre, Charles. 90 Minutes is quite long but I can do it he was brilliant I mean it was breathtaking sadly that was his last night but it was unbelievably good and that's such a relief you know when you know the person on stage well yes I mean if you would known each other well we did know each other when I was doing Strictly if you come to see me doing that I your look of crushing disappointment because <laughs> of how bad I was I mean the worst experience of the whole thing well I saw you oh, no. the, I saw you the day after you had you knew you were off but it hadn't been revealed and you weren't allowed to say and I remember I said to you how are you Richard and you went I have rather more spare time on my hands than I'd want (laughs) which was code for I've been voted off and you did look you looked near to tears I thought (laughs) did I now apparently we've been getting a lot of emails about how we know each other and how the rabbit hole detectives came to be apparently that's something that lots of people have we question? Have we made up a story about that yet? <laughs> well, I've conceded that it had nothing to do with me, except that you both happened to be around my table. Well, though a lot to do with you because yes. you were the host of our first meeting. Yeah, but that's it. So I was the facilitator, I suppose. But I think Kat had the idea because you're thinking of doing a podcast. If I remember right, the three of us, I know this is hard for the listener to believe, we're talking at sort of sixes and sevens all over the place with conversations. And I think Kat said, look, we should do a podcast because we all just talk a lot. Yeah, it was quite fun. <laughs> I remember we were talking about stuff that we've talked about, shark, you know, rotten shark and things, because oh, we were having lunch oh, and we were yeah. talking about rotten shark. Yeah, and I thought it was actually quite fun. 
So there we I go. I found out a good thing about sharks the other day. Did you? Mm. Their teeth renew themselves. Yes. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yes. They Did keep you know that? coming. I didn't, and I'm wondering how cats going to examine their pluck. Or shark pluck. I imagine it's, some, <laughs> it's well, if they get getting new teeth, yeah. it's not a great indicator, is it? No. Do they stick them time? out or swallow them? That's what I want to know. They know, go back in. This is like kind of conveyor belt of ah. new teeth. Yeah, keep on right? going. I think so. Go, yeah. I think keep we're going to have to have shark teeth or something like that. I might do this as a rabbit Yes, mm. I think that's a really good idea. Mm. Excellent. Well, so that's that out of the way. So I think we're going to move <laughs> on to our, our next topic today. And Charles, we're going to start with you. And your topic is... Monarch nicknames. What I've worked out from this topic is it was either something to do with your physical presence or the tone of your rule. That really is what we're dealing with. And I'm going to go back a really long way to 300 BC and Egypt. And there was a series of Ptolemy kings in that period of 305 to 30 BC. And they had morbid obesity. And we know that seven of them had that, and four of them actually had daytime somnolescence. You know, they just go to sleep in the day and stuff. And they all had nicknames. There's a rather jumbling effect. If you look at the Ptolemies in order, it's very hard to work it out because there's a different numerical system which has been imposed on them. But the nicknames are obviously the key to this topic. And the one I find the most interesting is called Ptolemy VIII. He's known as the benefactor as a sort of flattering thing. But his real nickname, which he was known by, was Fizcon, which means the large bubble. And his son, actually, <laughs> Ptolemy X, was so heavy that he couldn't walk. He had a man either side of him as a human walking stick, if he did have to move. So you can see why they got that nickname. But all through history, different monarchs from different civilizations and countries have had different names. And Kat, I'm going to almost kick off with one you'd know rather more about than me, which is Ivor Ragnarsson, ninth century ruler of York, who was known as Ivor the Boneless. Now, yes. we're not sure why that is. There's one theory that his father disobeyed the marital rules of the time. He was meant to wait three nights before consummating the marriage, but he was rather keener than that. And people said when the son was born that he would be born without bones as a sort of punishment for the father being too keen. Question. Mm. If you were born without bones, it might make life tricky, right? <laughs> yes. This is an, you know, an era before x-rays, Richard. You know? <laughs> there was also a possibility that he was known as the boneless because he was a great warrior and slipped around like a snake, which they thought had no bones oh. in it. So you know, sometimes you get these nicknames which we can only speculate on. But what would you say about him? What was, if you're thinking of him, a man that very few of us know much about, what yeah. do we know about him? It's interesting because we don't quite understand that boneless is bone, but it could also mean legs or legless. There's all sorts of interpretations of that as well. And I think another one is a, a sort of cowardly interpretation of spineless. it as well. Spineless, spineless yeah. essentially, yeah. boneless. So it could be that as well. Yeah. But it's one of those really odd ones. And I think that's probably more likely to be it. And I think the nickname came about and then all these sagas and legends afterwards have just picked up and they go, hmm, could be any of those things. 
Well, again, I mean, there are some, I've got a few English ones which I'm going to chuck in, or Anglo-Saxon anyway, and or kings of England, I suppose. And Ethelred the Unready. I mean, I think if anyone heard that, they'd assume that he was not really prepared for much. But if we look at what his actual nickname was, it was Unred. Is it Unred, would yeah. you say? Or Unredi? And that basically means the badly advised, which is okay. It's not a great thing as a king. It's a rather passive fault rather than an active one. He was considered to have had bad counsel, you know, and ironic because Ethelred, the name, means noble counsel. So there's a sort of contradiction there. One of the most famous rulers who's had the English throne would be William the Conqueror. And I think I've mentioned in previous episodes, actually, but he was not known as William the Conqueror for many generations after he lived. He was known as William the Bastard, not as an insult, but as a fact. His father was the Duke of Normandy, who spied a beautiful woman, Herr Lever, bathing naked in a river and had a relationship which resulted in William the Conqueror. And in fact, William the Conqueror, of course, was king in the same year as the death of Edward the Confessor. And the Confessor, we don't know. We know he had no children. Medieval admirers of him like to think he took a vow of chastity because he was such a pious man. Charles, Edward the Confessor, I seem to recall, was married to Queen Edith, in whom I have an interest. Yes, you're right, Richard. She was Harold, King Harold, the one who supposedly, but I don't believe, got an arrow in the eye at the Battle of Hastings. Edith was uh, Harold's sister, and it was really a marriage forced on Edward the Confessor. He did not like her or her family, and probably chose not to consummate. And he could have had other tendencies which were not acknowledged at the time. Would you like to know an interesting fact about Queen Edith? Yes. She granted the licence to the pub in Findon, the Bell, in 1041. No, well, that's so the story goes. Yes. Mm. Well, but it was the manner of Findon belonged to Queen Edith. She took rather an active part in its life. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, Edward Confessor, I think because he, he was a sort of rather impressive figure, he was a tall, handsome, slim man of learning who actually was very quickly canonised within 100 years of his death and became the patron saint of England, or one of the patron saints of England, until St. George was made the patron saint in 1350. So he was considered a very venerable man. But if you look at the research, he was partial to a bribe. And then we have, I mean, I want to go more mainstream and get out of the English or Anglo-Norman rut slightly and look at the man who I hadn't heard of before this, but he's called Evelio, the Tsar of Bulgaria, whose nickname was Cabbage. And um, this, <laughs> this is an unusual nickname. It was a reference to the fact that he came from a very humble peasant stock and people didn't want him to forget that. And in fact, his nickname was Badovka, which translates as radish or lettuce in Bulgarian, but cabbage in Greek when translated from Lacanus. Point to make, as you say, is that the two things get attached maybe long after the reign, and it's because history has made a judgment. For instance, yes. I think if Liz Truss, <laughs> our benighted former prime minister, yes. she would be Liz the Lettuce, wouldn't she? Her time in office was not oh, yes. as long as the life of the lettuce that <laughs> yes. was used to measure. So she would be Liz the Lettuce. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. and she will be now. Presumably people wouldn't be allowed most of the time to use these. some of these if they are particularly bad nicknames. Well, you're right. I mean, the time. so we have Charles VI of France, who is known to history as Charles the Mad. And the poor man clearly was very unwell mentally. 
he had, they reckon, about 43 episodes of lasting three to nine months of insanity. It could have been bipolar. Very, very strange episodes. He was convinced he was made of glass. That's a thing. It is a thing. Is mm. it? Yes. Yeah, it's a thing. He used to wrap himself up very carefully and wear rods in his clothes and genuinely thought he was about to break. And yeah. you're right, Richard, I thought that was unique, but it's, it is a thing. It's part of a thing called Scholar's Melancholy, which is a sort of collection of, well, mental diseases and conditions that this is part of. Question. Mm. George III, also famously mad. Yes. I mean, periods of disabling mental incapacity. But he was known as Farmer George, wasn't That's he? That's so interesting. So we don't, yes. think, we don't say George the Mad, we say Farmer George. Does that say something about the way his popularity or the way... The English or the Hanoverians choose to remember there. I mean, he wasn't a destructive king. I think, I mean, Charles the Mad was really Mad. very, very complicated man. And he could go into psychotic episodes. He killed some of his men just out of cruelty, etc. He did have some bad luck. There was a time when he and five of his companions dressed for a celebration as what were known as wild men, which is sort of half beast, half human. And they were wearing rags and a sort of bedraggled fur. And they went too close to the fire. And they caught fire. And four of them died. And he survived, but was burnt. And one of his other men. And they're saying that that contributed to his lifetime of madness too. And it grew worse and worse every day. He wouldn't let himself be touched because of the glass phobia. And, you know, there are other kings of France. There's Louis the Fat, who was a rather brilliant general in the early 12th century, took on the nobility in France and Henry I of England. But I think rather like Henry VIII, from what I understand of Henry VIII, a very physical, impressive young man who just overindulged on food and drink. And by the end of his reign, couldn't do the one thing he was good at. He couldn't even get involved in a fight. You get the sense of this with Henry VIII, don't you? As a prince, he was just full of beans and had these amazing appetites. Of course, if you're young and you're jousting and you're running around and you're having a well of time, you can keep that under control. But as soon as you start getting into age... It's difficult. And if you just... Your commanding. Metabolism. If you're commanding rather than actually actively taking part as well. Yeah. You yes, you have that. You have yeah. that and advisors of... saying, because he nearly died, didn't he, in a tournament? Yes. In yeah, yes. And they think that might have been the turning point in his life. Yes. Oh. In England, going back to the first queen who ruled in her own right, Mary I of England, who ruled in 1553 to 8, she's known by what some people perceive as a quite misogynistic name, as Bloody Mary, because she had 300 Protestants put to death for heresy. And people point out this is very unfair because Henry VIII, her father, killed countless thousands of people, but he's not known as buddy, whatever. But perhaps because she's a woman, it was perceived as something that she shouldn't have been liable to do. I think also the Reformation eventually prevailed in Britain and we became a Protestant nation. So you would remember the last Catholic monarch who persecuted Protestants with particular contumely, I think. I think there's that. And of course, her half-sister Elizabeth was also put heretics to death. But also, I think it's the fact that she burnt them, which was the normal way to deal with heretics back then, because the idea was, if you were a heretic, you were so evil that your whole body should be consumed by flames. There shouldn't be a relic left behind. The ashes would be thrown into a river, you'd be forgotten. But that was normal. I'm not saying I'd wish that on anyone, but that was the proper execution yeah. for a heretic. Yeah. If we stray further afield, I want to deal with Vlad 
the impaler. <gasps> the impaler. Who Ooh, basically yes. brought, I know I have a reputation, but he brought about impaling as psychological warfare and a deterrent. I mean, what a way to go. And it was men, women and children. And there wasn't much of a trial, really. It was just done. Having had that, I'm going to go into Ivan the Terrible, who was known as the Tsar and Grand Prince of Russia, but is one of the most infamous rulers of history. And I think there were two episodes that really undid him. One was in 1558. One of his prime noblemen betrayed him and went over to the Lithuanians. And that really set him off on a path of distrust. And 1560, his wife was poisoned. We reckon from her bones now. He thought she was poisoned. People couldn't prove it at the time, but there's a quite a lot of mercury in her bones. And he was just appalling. He was persuaded to continue as ruler after he didn't want to. And he basically looked after half of what we would consider Russia and uh, appointed a police. And I'm not sure if this is the right pronunciation, but the Oprichniki. And they dressed in black and they used to have severed dog's heads strapped to their saddles. And they had total carte blanche to do whatever they wanted to suspects. Didn't even have to be somebody who had done something wrong. And Ivan the Terrible took against the second city after Moscow. And he basically killed everyone he could lay his hands on. Priests and monks were beaten to death. And the aristocracy and merchants were tortured to death. And women and children were driven into the river to drown. So this does leave a stain on your reputation. Yes. Didn't he murder his own son? He did. And that was an absolute disaster. He killed his only viable heir, Ivan, with a baton. And that led, after his own death, Ivan the Terrible, it led to what they call the time of troubles, which was basically a time of total discord. So he tops my list of baddies. But I do have a favourite fact. I was thinking, you know, when you get a topic such as this, it's very easy just to think of monarchs as we do in England today. But I wanted to look at some of the names, a couple of the names of the Native Americans that are the most famous. I was thinking of Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. How did they get those names? And in the Native American culture, you would get a boyhood name, probably on your appearance or how you were, and you would earn your manhood name. And so Sitting Bull, who was a Sioux tribesman from what we would know as sort of North and South Dakota, was originally known as Jumping Badger. He wasn't Sitting Bull. And then he, when he went into a sort of adolescence, he was just known as Slow because he was a great (laughs) deliberator. But when he was 14, he managed to knock a rival tribesman off his war horse with a tomahawk and his father gave him his name, Sitting Bull, which is a reference to a buffalo, as a a reward for his bravery. And then with Crazy Horse, (laughs) Crazy Horse was known as Curly because of his hair, uh, until his (laughs) father gave him his own name again of Crazy Horse after he did very well in a battle. And his father took the name for himself of Worm. So there we are. And St. Hiawatha was known as Moustache Wax. Is that true? I don't know. I just made it very good. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I love that. There are so many good names, aren't they? Well, there's too many. Yeah. I mean, it's worth a series, really. I had. There's so many, and some of them are ludicrous. I mean, things like the Merry Monarch, for example. It's not. He's not Charles the Jolly. He's no. the Merry Monarch. It's, it's a rather lovely, way of doing isn't it? it? Yeah. That. I mean, he was. 
you know, enjoyed the good times, really. I always see Charles II as a sort of Euro lottery winner who he just got the throne when he wasn't really expecting it and had a very nice 25 years of not doing an enormous amount of ruling and a lot of enjoying. He was broke, wasn't he, when he was wandering around Northern Europe? Totally. And then suddenly he gets the coffers of England spliced open. So, Mm -hmm. Well, I'd make me... No wonder he was merry. Yeah, well, exactly. Would be, what about be? butter penis? Butter haven't penis. had butter penis, have we? I thought you no. might bring him up. Yeah, yeah. Do we know how he got the name? <laughs> we still don't know. I think I need to just it delve would be into a this podcast. Still turning it over, I think, Richard. Virility, wouldn't it? Yeah. I assume so, unless it was a sort of ironic. Goodness knows. I'll try and find out for Thank you. Thank you. But, Maybe yeah. you could do him as a special. Yeah, it's a special topic on <laughs> Mr. Butterpenis. Butter <laughs> I've forgotten his actual name. I just, you know, it's just a nickname. It's just, just stuck yeah. with us, isn't it? What's butter penis yeah. in Norwegian? Um, smur penis. <laughs> Doesn't get better, does it? <laughs> Not really. No, no. <laughs> Sorry, I've got painkillers for my... i <laughs> <laughs> a bit mad. <laughs> on that note. Yes. Move <laughs> in. Thank you, Jim. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That was great. And we are going to move on to you, Richard, your subject, which I know nothing about, and that's Typhoid Mary. Typhoid Mary. Yes. Step with me, if you will. (laughs) To Oyster Bay, Mm. Long Island, New York, where socialites would go and spend their summers. It's 1906. And there's a family that rented a house there. And all of a sudden, the household fell ill. Now... This was not something that the owner of the house wished to go without inquiry because obviously it would affect his chances of letting that house to other wealthy families who would want to come and spend the summers there. So he hired a private detective called Mr Soper to look into this. And Mr Soper came and looked into it and couldn't understand why there was an outbreak of typhoid fever. Did a little bit of searching around, took some samples, nothing in the house, and he began to suspect that there may be someone, a vector of infection in a person. So he did a little bit of sleuthing and he discovered that there was a cook, an Irish cook called Mary Mallon. And over the previous sort of six or seven years, she had worked in a number of households. Highly respectable woman, highly acclaimed as a cook, got on well with everybody, was famous for her ice cream with fresh peaches. Everybody went absolutely mad for that. And he began to see that the common factor between these outbreaks of typhoid fever was Mary Mallon. He eventually began to think that she must be the person who was responsible for transmitting typhus around her employers and fellow servants tracked her down to an apartment penthouse apartment on park avenue and he went to her and he said i think that you might be a transmitter of typhoid fever she said no it can't be i'm absolutely fine she was so cross and so angry to be accused of things that she fought him off with a carving fork and (laughs) off he went but he persisted and he persisted and he persisted And he went to see the New York health authorities and he showed the evidence he had for this. And they said, all right, bring her in. So anyway, he went to track her down and she'd done a runner. 
But then they found a bit of her dress sticking out from a wardrobe door. The other servants, when they realised that he'd come back, hid her because they liked her so much because she was such a popular person. But anyway, she was then put in an ambulance and was sat on and delivered to the Infectious Diseases Hospital where she was against her will tested. And it was discovered that she was something that nobody really knew anything about at all. She was an asymptomatic bearer of typhoid fever. Now, this was a completely Mm. new concept, almost, almost unheard of. The idea that someone could be infectious and yet be asymptomatic, but that was the case. And so she was forcibly quarantined on North Brother Island, which is in Hudson, which is where they kept a quarantine hospital there. She, meanwhile, protested the whole time that she was not guilty of this. She was completely, she was outraged that she could be deprived of her liberty. And more than that, have her gift as a cook so impugned by the suggestion that she could be responsible for infecting people. Well, she was. It was probably in her gallbladder, they thought. Maybe we should remove the gallbladder. That was an extremely dangerous operation. Get off me, she said, get off me. She was obliged to live in this little bungalow for three years on North Brother Island. Eventually, she sort of began to acclimatise herself a little bit to it. And they did some research. She's a fascinating person. She was born in 1869 in Ireland. Nobody really knows where. There's a mystery about her origins. And she maintained that as a secret all her life, not even on her deathbed or as she approached death, did she reveal her. I thought she came from Cookstown in County Tyrone, but we don't really know. But she arrived in New York as a teenager. New York then was filthy, insanitary place. The streets were full of the carcasses of dead horses. There were piles of effluent here and there and everywhere. And the elements of hygiene were unknown. So Typhoid Mary, in common with lots of other Irish immigrants or people living in New York at that time, did not have a very high standard of hygiene. But then people didn't know that if you didn't wash your hands, particularly after you'd been to the loo, that that might endanger well, I, that's what I was going to ask. So she was transmitting it through her hands in the kitchen, was she? Well, faecal matter, Charles. We're talking about microbes, right? Okay. Yes. So she didn't have... New York was a filthy place. She'd mm. grown up in Ireland. Mm. Standards of hygiene were very different than today. And also the sanitation and infrastructure in New York was very, very poor in those days. Yes. And so she did what everybody else did. She didn't wash very much. Mm. But, of course, she was absolutely fine. She had no reason to believe that she could... She absolutely maintained till her dying breath that she was not responsible for the transmission of typhoid, but in fact, she was. So anyway, there was a whole hoo-ha about this. She agitated constantly to have her liberty restored to her. And in the end, after about three years on North Brother Island, they said to her, "Okay, as long as you promise never to work in food preparation ever again, you can have it. She said, thank you very much. So off she went and she became a laundress, but not for very long. Because actually, she really liked cooking, and she still was certain that she was not responsible for the typhoid that was attributed to her. I should say, there are different accounts of how many people. But we know that she probably infected lots of people. The numbers who died, I think the most conservative estimate is about three, four, or five, but some think she was as many as 50 people might have died. So these were very lively concerns for the New York Health Department, and indeed for Mr. Soper. Anyway, Mary... She used to check in with the authorities she was supposed to do, but then she just sort of disappeared. She changed her name. And then at the women's hospital in New York, and I think it was about 1915, 
there was an outbreak of typhoid fever. And the superintendent there phoned up Mr. Soper and he said, uh, reason to believe we've got this outbreak of typhoid fever. And I know you're an expert in that. I wonder if you'd come and have a look. So he did come and have a look. And he said, you haven't by any chance got a cook called Mary <laughs> Mary?" <laughs> and they said, no, we have a cook called Mrs. Brown. And he said, you don't by any chance have an example of her handwriting. And they did. And he recognised it as once as the handwriting of Mary Mallon. So she was nicked again and she was taken back to North Brother Island where she spent the rest of her life. She lived in quarantine in the end for more than 30 years. Now, she died in the 1930s in her early 60s of a stroke. At the time of her death, there were 400 other people they knew to be asymptomatic carriers of the typhoid virus. But none of them had this restriction. Now, partly this is because she kind of went, she said she wouldn't work in cookery, and she did yes, work in yeah. cookery again. So she kind of blew her chances. The Hearst newspaper proprietors then and now cared nothing about rubbishing or destroying the reputations of people. So Typhoid Mary came about as a kind of newspaperman's way of describing her. And she was never able to shake it off. She bitterly resented it all her life. But the poor old thing ended up living in this isolation bungalow on North Brother Island in the Hudson River. Would you know, Richard, I mean, they just dropped off supplies. I mean, obviously she could cook for herself, but did they just drop supplies on the end of a pier or something? I mean, how does it work? Well, at first they were sort of terrified of her, so yeah. they treated her like a, a leper. leper yeah. But of course, as we know now, that leprosy is not a particularly contagious disease, but of course people's fear of it was the thing that was contagious. Mm. And so with Typhoid Mary, so she wrote an account where she said she woke up in the morning in her bungalow mm. and she had a breakfast, and then she said she sat around just waiting to go to bed again. Food would be brought her by a nurse and left on her little veranda and stuff. And eventually people began to live alongside her. It's fine. She made friends with people. And there was a particular friend she had. They got on very well and everything, but the friend would never eat the apple that Mary would give her to eat. So there were sort of elements of yeah. restraint in her friendship. But she was a really remarkable person, actually. And she accumulated in the course of her life. She came from nothing. And to be a domestic servant in New York in the 1900s was the lowest of the low. And to be an Irish domestic, she accumulated a fortune of about $6,000, which was quite a sum. Yes. And when she did die, she left that, some of it to uh, the people who had taken care of her. But quite a lot went to the families of the households in which she'd lived. So perhaps there was on some level some kind of acknowledgement yes, that, that she she'd... hadn't been the best thing ever to turn up in there. Brilliant kitchens. name, though. I mean, I know it's a very sad tale, but Typhoid Mary, it's a punchy name. Well, it's a punchy name, but I mean, she bitterly resented all her mm. life that she was. I mean, she was, by all accounts, a very remarkable woman, resourceful. Mm. She was very popular with other servants. Employees loved her, apparently her ice cream with peaches <laughs> was absolutely yes. sensational. Yeah. I have a favourite fact for you. Yes, oh, yes, please. So as people began to get used to living around her in her second period of confinement, uh, she began to make herself kind of useful. But do you know where she ended up working? And which gave her an enormous satisfaction in her work and also rewarded her. The bacteriology laboratory. <laughs> she ended up preparing slides. She became a lab assistant and preparing slides of sputum for the detection yes. of tuberculosis. So Very typhoid good. Mary ended up actually in the battle against bacterial infection. Quite, oh, that's a lovely tale, yeah. Amazing. Yes. I like that. It's very good. 
Excellent. So, and what have you got for us, Doctor? So this week, final topic is one that's been suggested by one of our listeners. Uh, Janelle wanted us to look into the Greenland Norse. So it's back to the Viking Age again. And, and the Norse. So yes, I had to take that one, really. So the Norse, just to sort of explain that word, because it's one of those that we use alongside the Vikings and the Viking Age and all of that. But it's used about Greenland especially, because we're talking from the sort of 10th century and several hundred years up until about the 15th century. So we're out of the Viking Age, but we're talking about these people coming from Scandinavia and Iceland, settling Greenland, and especially what happened to them. And it's one of those that people describe as a big mystery because we still don't quite know. People have lots of different theories. There's new theories coming up pretty much every year. And it's an intriguing one because we know from the sagas and from the archaeology that these people came from Iceland originally from from Norway to settle Greenland in the 980s. Of course, Greenland was already settled by a native population. Sorry to chip in there. What was Greenland like then? Was it green? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was icy. It was not. It was icy, really. <laughs> oh, okay. So we think that this name Greenland, according to the sagas at least, was a marketing strategy to get people to settle there. Come to Greenland. <laughs> yes, come to the <laughs> nice green land. Come with me. Yes, it's exactly. an isn't it? Because Iceland is green, but it, Greenland yeah, it was is a lot icy. Greenland. Exactly. So this was probably one of the most successful PR tricks in history really getting people to settle in an extremely inhospitable place actually uh, it's a huge i think it's the world's largest island greenland and the climate is obviously very very challenging there are very few places where you can actually live and you have to pretty much bring everything with you unless you live like the native inuit populations who subsist very much just on what they can get and from marine resources so we know from the sagas and from the archaeology from the 980s, uh, according to the sagas, it was a man called Eirik the Red who settled. He was actually an outlaw. He came from Norwegian, Norway originally. He'd been outlawed, sent to Iceland, and then he kept on killing people, basically, and he kept being kicked out. And, um, Oops. Yes, one yeah. of those annoying things. <laughs> and he had nowhere else to go because he'd gone west. So he apparently just went into this ship and, and came across this place and thought, oh, actually, I could settle here. Went back and managed to gather 25 ships, promising this a great place to live. Only 14 of them actually survived the crossing and started the new settlements. And this was in the 980s. And we know that people were there until the 15th century. So about 400 years. The last ever account of the Greenland Norse is 1408, when we have written records of a wedding that took place between a man called Torstein Olafsson and a woman called Sigrid Björnsdottir. They later settled in Iceland two years later. This was 1408. That's the last we hear of this population. We don't know what happened to it. It disappears, mm. basically. So over the years, people have been trying, desperately trying to find out. When people come back from Europe later on in, I think, it's sort of 17th, 18th century, they find all these farmsteads, all these completely deserted farmsteads. So huge big population in the heyday of about 3,000 people settled among the Greenland Norse. And then they go. So the question is... typhoid medicine. <laughs> I love the ice cream and the peaches, but I don't <laughs> yes. feeling too well. Exactly. So this has been the big question, really. And there are so many different theories. One of them was that the Thule, uh, Thule or Thule people, I don't know quite how you pronounce it, wiped them out because there was clearly some animosity between them. That's almost certainly not true. And in fact, the archaeology is showing that although there was tension between them there was also trade there were things happening between them 
One of the more popular theories is the Jared Diamond approach, suggesting that these people couldn't adapt. They were stubbornly clinging on to their sort of European ways of living. They couldn't change to any sort of changing circumstances and environments. We know that that's absolutely not true at all. And in fact, this is a population that managed to survive for about 400 years in very mm. difficult climates. We know there's a bit of climate change going on. We went from the medieval warm period when it was settled to the period called as a little ice age around 1200 when it was colder and drier. So it was harder to survive. But I think the really key aspect is actually what they were living off. So what do you live off? in a place like this. How do you thrive? Seal blubber, blubber. or something. Yeah. Yes, blubber's quite good. Seal's good. You, you eat mm. seal. They did have cattle. They had sheep and goats as well, mainly for dairy. It's not mm -hmm. really something that you could live off. But the source of their wealth was walrus ivory. Oh. And it was the trade in ivory that was hugely profitable. Mm. And in Europe, this was one of the key commodities. This was one of the luxuries that everybody wanted. So if you were a high-standing Viking overlord, getting something smart made out of walrus tusk would be... Yeah, that's the thing to have. And this was really the main source. And... Quite astonishingly now, with looking at ancient DNA, we've been able to discover that as far east as Kiev, ivory is coming from Greenland in this time, so round about sort of 11, 1200. It's being traded huge, vast distances, and it was extremely profitable. There wasn't really many other sources at all. You always really you don't get them many other places. And elephant ivory isn't coming in to Europe until later on. And you've got things like the Crusades, obviously, when, when we get into mm. the Crusading period, stopping some of that trade as well. Why was ivory so highly prized? Was it because it could be carved so intricately? What was it about ivory that people loved? I think it's that. I think it's the way it could be used as a luxury material and carved so beautifully. It was very unique and it was just used for very sort of specific purposes. It's not a sort of utilitarian thing. I think sometimes these exotic luxuries are just because they are exotic and they are rare. They could be formed into stuff that high-ranked people could wear as a display of their power and wealth and then think, oh, I want some of that. But, I mean, presumably there are a lot of walruses and therefore a lot of ivory. So how, when you've got a surplus of material, how does it maintain its worth? So there's not that much because they are quite difficult to catch and actually... Oh. This is possibly key, part of the key to the decline of the population because they were essentially living off these walruses and the trade. And in fact, is the reason why Greenland came under the subject of the Norwegian king in 1261 so that they could ensure the trade. They had to know that the ships could come in and take the goods out. But over time, it's been shown that different species were being exploited and actually some of the species that were living closer to land mm. were the most commonly used first and then later on they had to go further out so presumably because it was so popular they had to bring it more challenging oh. and more risky because this is dangerous yes. territory um would you like to know a walrus fact i'd love a walrus fact yes please <laughs> the oxford english dictionary definition of walrus was written by jrr tolkien oh that's very good richard that is that's good. good that's very good i didn't know that yeah. there we go But yeah, so it seems like this sort of big mystery, one of the main reasons was this and the decline that then takes place into this period when the settlement is declining 
we start to get more elephants either into Europe and it becomes less popular. So you don't have that profit anymore. The Black Death uh, takes place in Europe where about a third of the population of Europe is essentially wiped out. And so that changes everything really and it changes the trading patterns in Norway about 60% of the population died so with that being the main trading partner you're suddenly struggling quite a lot but also couldn't they have got the black death is it not that simple yeah it's possible it doesn't really seem to be it's a very Mm. distant population Mm -hmm. so it doesn't really seem to have affected them so badly but it's more that the economic basis so they seem to have just upped and left and there's some amazing archaeology where you these houses are quite complete and there's things buried in the ground in the houses so i think it's probably not so much of a mystery as it seemed that people would like it to be but do you want to know my favorite fact from Greenland. Oh, yeah. Yes, please. I was looking for a better example than Buttered Penis, I have to say, because I know there are a lot of names. It's not quite the same league, but one of my favorite people is somebody called Leek Lodin, or Corpse Lodin. So his name is Lodin, that's his nickname. Corpse Lodin. <laughs> Corpse Lodin. Because what he did, he would travel around in the summer, he would travel around Greenland, actually looking for dead bodies. Mm. And that's why he was given this name. He looks for corpses because there were so many shipwrecks. It was very dangerous and there was lots of ships that essentially were wrecked and people were stuck. So he would look for all these people who had died, take their bodies, take their bones back to give them a proper Christian burial. So uh, that was sort of his mission in life was I to go and say he was made into jewellery or something. But no, <laughs> or fertiliser, going back no, to a very early one. But he did sometimes have to do things to these bodies to transport them, which I'm mm. not going to go into detail how we turn them into bones. But. Can I ask you a really stupid question, Kat? Yes. Forgive me, I know nothing. Now, so there's your Viking culture expanding around the North Atlantic and everything. St Kilda, yeah, we got that. I said, yeah, we got that. Greenland, we got that. And then Viking culture kind of diminishes, dwindles, recedes and everything. And then later civilization comes along and thinks, oh, we've discovered that. What happened to the Vikings? Well, in general, yeah. overall? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because they sort of become part of something slightly bigger. So in Europe, in Scandinavia, you have the creation of the individual countries so Norway, Sweden and Denmark actually just come into being properly at the end of the Viking Age. They all become Christian as well. So they become Christianized. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The spoil of the fun. Dust the fire in your belly. (laughs) Exactly. Persuasive. All those missionaries. So then the motive, the reason why you might want to go out and rape and pillage and conquest is gone. Yeah, it's different. They become more sort of inwardly focused in a way and focusing on these nations these individual nations and i suppose all of europe is transforming at this time you go into the middle ages so there's sort of bigger things happening all also over have the place. offshoots don't you you have them in italy and obviously in normandy and yeah. ukraine yes exactly so these yeah. are all i think they're all developing these nations these sort of separate identities and tv programs and people going oh you know we wouldn't have the fall of the vikings but they didn't really fall as such they, they assimilate. just trans- mm. assimilate they yeah. transform yeah. and and turn into something else. And this is the reason why we talk about them as the Green and Norse, as opposed to the Vikings, even though it starts very much in the Viking Age, in the 10th century. By the 15th century, we're not talking about Vikings anymore. So it's a different, you know, different things happen in different but places. 19th century, rather romantic idea of the Vikings, actually a creation, of, it's a cultural creation yes. rather than historical recovery. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you could argue that there's no such thing as the Vikings at all. It's but just if the you, nature if, of if, you, if we accept there were Vikings, where's the last outpost that would have celebrated a Viking heritage? I think 
Iceland is probably one of the really key parts because that was very much settled in the Viking Age from the 9th century. Mm-hmm. And the whole identity of Iceland is based on those early settlers. And they've had much less of an impact from other people, I think. Mm. But all the Scandinavian countries really reviews that heritage, those kings and those mm. rulers as, mm. as our sort of origin point, really. I'm sorry to go on, but I've got another question. Yes, <laughs> that's fine. When did Greenland become Danish? So that, I think, came in 1760s, I believe, I think. Oh, um, so recent. Yeah, so that's much more recent. So it's a Danish-Norwegian colonization of Greenland. Of course, again, you know, we have this native population who was there before and continued throughout. And it was only, I believe it was around about 1760s, but I'm hoping that the disembodied voice is going to check that for me. Yes, I've just had a look and it looks like Denmark colonised Greenland in 1721. Of oh, 21. Fascinating. I'm very disappointed though, Kat, that so I love the Viking stories when I was a kid. Henry Treese, oh, Horned yes. Helmet, The Road to Miklagard. Absolutely. I loved all that stuff. Yeah. Yes. And now you've trampled with your historical <laughs> archaeological feet all over the Horned See, Helmet. I'm a professional spoil sport. That's clearly my job. <laughs> it's true, isn't it, Kat? You know, Richard I know. and I like to embellish. I know. When I come and you are a Viking. I am a Viking from my DNA. But I would say you, you don't embellish, do you? You dissect. Tell the truth. I know. Yeah. I'm sorry. Somebody's going to have to. <laughs> no, you're the one. There we go. You should be the one. The voice of reason. Yeah. <laughs> I try. I do try very hard. It's not, not always so easy. Yes, I think we've got a comment from our disembodied voice. Yes, I was just going to add, Charles, you asked about Greenland being green. Obviously, Kat has informed us that it's not at all. But it is thought that along the southwestern coast of Greenland, there were two deep fjords that were protected from the elements. So flora, fauna, green verges were allowed to grow. And that's what the Norse stumbled upon. And that's where they made their settlement. So they were almost... Led Suck into thinking into that Greenland yeah. was something that it wasn't. Yes. Do you remember Donald Trump trying to buy Greenland? Yes. Do you remember a little while ago when he was bored one day in <laughs> Mar-a-Lago? He said to the Danish crown, I wonder if you'd like to sell me Greenland. Yeah. Did he chuck anything in as a figure or did he I not get that far? No, I think they told him to sling his hook. He probably yes. wanted to make it into a golf course. Yes. Yeah. Probably thought it was nice and green. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't do much research. He bought into the PR as well. He did, he did. It's long-standing. So I think that leaves us with Mm. the most exciting part of the episode Mm. when our disembodied voice is going to undemocratically decide this week's winner. Undemocratically again. Yes. Mm. Well, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I thought this week was also quite difficult, but I am going to give it to... Richard, yes. Typhoid Mary. It's a great story. It was a very good story. She was great, well don't you think? Yes. yes. She deserves a victory and so do you. She was called the least harmful and most dangerous woman in America. Friends with cholera Kate. <laughs> <laughs> or Marsha Measles. She yes. sounds like a drag. Yes. drag yeah. This could Nate. be a whole Halloween party. Typhoid Mary. Yeah. Yeah. More titles. <laughs> so we're now actually in season three and we're 10 episodes in so i think i've completely lost track of how we're doing scores wise Uh, i've got suspicions about this do you want to have a guess well Well, how many episodes have we done all together 
Or are we doing the 10? Are we talking about the 10? Well, I was going to ask this. Are we doing scores all the way from episode one, series one, or are we just doing series well, we've three? we've had a twin track scoring metric, haven't we? Of like overall scores and yeah. then season scores too. I think we need both. I don't know. I think there's something so arbitrary about this. I'm not sure it's really helpful to the listeners. <laughs> you might not say that, Richard, when you well, hear the answer. Again. <laughs> <laughs> so, scores on the doors are from season three... So we're 10 episodes in now. Charles, four. Cat, three. Richard, three. From season one, all way back when, Charles, 13. Cat, 11. Richard, also 13. Mm. Mm. Okay. I've got some work to do, haven't I? I think. Not much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know how pleasingly evenly matched, actually. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, shall we um, tell our listeners what we're going to be looking at next week before we yes. go? Yes. Richard, you are going to be researching accidental discoveries. Yes. I'm going to be looking at roller derby. Mm-hmm. And Charles, gladiators. Okay. Socks and sandals, whatever is it? Swords and sandals. <laughs> Socks, Socks and sandals is very British, yes. That's what vicars do. <laughs> and it's trendy now, apparently. David Beckham has started wearing socks Oof. with sandals. Well, there we go. Maybe that's going to be part of your research for next <laughs> <Yes>. week. <laughs> I think that leaves us right at the end of the episode. So, thank you to everyone out there for listening. Please do subscribe and leave us a review because it really helps people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. Don't forget that you can send us an email if you'd like, especially if you'd like to suggest a topic for us to fall down and research. That's rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, the proper order of things is often a mystery to me. Mm. Goodbye. Bye. (laughs) 